And we will be reading Mark chapter 3, verses 7, thank you, verses 7 through 19. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God! And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Lord, we know that as we read your word, we are not reading the words of men, but your word. We're not reading a mere book but the revelation of the God from whom eternity passed has directed all things according to the counsel of His will. And in Your mercy, You have revealed Your plan and Your truth that we might be rescued from sin and one day dwell in Your presence for eternity. You have revealed these truths that we might know You that we might treasure You, that we might find and taste Your glory and see that it is more wonderful, more satisfying than anything that this world has to offer. And so my particular prayer this afternoon, God, is that You would so speak through Your Word, so make Your Word clear and Your truths clear, that we would be drawn to You. Not just in an intellectual sense that we believe what your word says, but that our hearts would be captured. And that we would find Christ more desirable and more amazing. That we would be willing to leave everything and follow you. I ask that you would do that miracle in every heart today. And ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Have you come to Christ? Well, in order to answer that question, I think it's fair to ask, well, what do you mean by saying 
come to Christ. Because he's not here physically. So how would one come to Christ? Are you asking, have I died and gone to heaven to be with Christ? Clearly not. So what does it mean to come to Christ? Well, I think usually when people use that phrase to come to Christ, it's a simplified way of saying or asking, have you responded to his offer of forgiveness? Maybe the offer that he gives in Matthew eleven twenty eight: come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or the offer he gives in John 6.37, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. A great promise. So it's really a simplified way of describing a person who has been saved. When we ask, have you come to Christ? We're asking, are you saved? However, one of the things that we'll see in this passage is that's maybe an an oversimplification because many people in this passage come to Christ but never experience salvation. This passage highlights three groups who come to Christ and their motivations in doing so. You have the crowds. They come to Christ because of what they heard. And what he was doing. The demons. They come to Christ because they want to interfere with what he's doing. And then the apostles. And they come to Christ very clearly because he calls them. They were summoned personally. So this tells us the critical question that we need to ask is, why is a person drawn to Christ? Why is a person drawn to Christ? In fact, I think it's worth asking, even before we get into the passage, why are you attracted to Christ? Like, why are you here in church this afternoon? What are you looking for? What is it that you want? What do you expect Christ to give you? What's motivating you to come to Christ? And which of these groups might you be more closely aligned with? Let's look first at the crowds. It says, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed. And they're from all over the place. Multitudes are coming to Christ from all over Palestine, from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. Not only are these crowds coming from different places, they actually represent different ethnicities as well. Those who are from Jerusalem and Judea are Jews. But those who are from beyond the Jordan and Idumea, those are probably a mixture of both Gentile and Jewish people. A mixed race. And then Tyre and Sidon would primarily be Gentile peoples, even north of Palestine. So, so throughout this region, people have heard, and you have a mixture of ethnicities and a mixture of locales where people have heard of Christ and they're coming to Him. The text next tells us that they came to Him, 
these crowds because they heard what he was doing. That is, they have come to him because they want to be healed or because they want to see him do miraculous things. And note that it doesn't say that they came to listen to what he had to say or that they've come to follow him. No, they've come because they heard what he was doing. And they're coming in droves, massive crowds. In fact, the scene that that Mark describes as like a feeding frenzy of sharks, really. Jesus even needs to ask his disciples to to bring along a boat in in case he gets too crowded that it's dangerous, he can hop in the boat and kind of push off the shore a little bit. In fact, look at verse 9. It says that they are, they're crowding him. The word means to, to press hard upon or to crush. In fact, it's actually a word used to describe the crushing of grapes to make wine. Verse 10, they're pressing around him. Literally, they, they're falling upon him. So those around Jesus are falling against him to the extent that it's actually dangerous. And thus the need for the boat. I mean, think of the images that you've seen of rock stars who are walking through a crowd and, 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 and people are yelling and screaming. Some people are trying to touch him or her. And it's just, it's chaos. These are people who are, who are clearly desperate to come to Christ. They're desperate to have their afflictions relieved. So they swarm him in hopes that they just might touch him. And in simply touching him, they could have the worst afflictions that maybe they've had for their whole life. Have them relieved. Gone. And just recognize that they have seen the genuine power of Jesus. That he could cure any malady that they face. And let that rest upon you. Even think in your own minds of people that you know who are bearing with severe afflictions. Cancer. Depression. Migraines. Cerebral palsy. Alzheimer's. Dementia. Infertility. Autism. Down syndrome, dyslexia, anxiety. Or think of even the afflictions you yourself face. What what would you be willing to do if you knew there was somebody that just by touching your loved one could cure that affliction permanently, gone? What would you be willing to do to touch him, to get that family member to touch him. What risks would you take to see that happen? For that affliction to be completely removed. I mean, wouldn't you be desperate to come to Christ? If Christ has the power to heal people, then it begs this question. Why is it that his followers so rarely experience this healing? 
And I've just talked about all Jesus needs to do is touch. In fact, all he needs to do is will it, and all of us could immediately be healed of every affliction. Why is it then that his children, his followers, rarely get to experience such healing? Why why does he allow those whom he has called to continue to suffer? Well, consider these words of Paul to the Corinthians. It's in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 12. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body of death, in the body, the death of Jesus. I mean, this is his apostles. And, and look at that list. Afflicted in every way. And he explains why. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. To answer the question, why is it that God allows his children to continue to suffer if he could immediately heal them? Well, first of all, it demonstrates that there must be a greater need than temporal healing. Now, the reality is Jesus does desire for every single one of us to be freed from all of our afflictions. But that can only happen truly. It can only happen fully until when we have been freed from this body of sin and death. Because every soul that sins must die. So even if he were to heal a person now from this horrible disease that they have, it's only temporary. They're still going to die at some point. They're still going to get another affliction. They're still going to bear with the, 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 the decay of sin that just abounds in this world. Physical healing at best is just temporal. Secondly, this tells us that God could have sent others to perform healing. If all God wanted to do was just heal people from their physical afflictions, he could have He could have sent anybody. Why did he send his son? He sent his son so that he might conquer death and thereby bring about perfect healing. Jesus died in order to conquer death and the consequences of sin permanently. Do you see that? Jesus isn't interested in just temporal healing. He wants people to be fully healed, to be fully freed from the effects of sin. He wants to heal people, but not just temporarily, but fully. But in order for them to get that full healing, what's necessary? They need to realize they need perfect healing. In particular, they need the healing of their own heart. Their greatest need is not to have their affliction removed. Their greatest need is to have their heart changed. So Jesus allows his followers to continue to experience death 
so that they can more effectively proclaim the hope that he gives to others. The reason he allows us to continue to bear with afflictions as Christians is because it's as we bear affliction, we can proclaim our hope is not in our health, our wealth, our joys in this life. We have a greater hope. In fact, we could easily say, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body, they can kill, but God's truth abides still. And that's what you need to know. We can say, Jesus does want you to be healed. But he wants you to be healed permanently. And this is why Christians actually boast in their weaknesses. You know this passage well. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9-12. through 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12, 9 through 12. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see that? My power is perfected in weakness. And that's what we want is... As Christians, we want to proclaim God's word with power. We don't want to just talk about ideas. We don't want to just throw out truth and hope maybe somebody believes what we're saying. No, we want to see the Spirit of God work in power to, to soften hard hearts. Well, how is this going to happen? When His power is made perfect. Well, how is it going to be made perfect? In weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because when people see I am content with all the horrors that this world can pour upon me, they realize my hope really isn't in this life. I have a hope that transcends this life and I'm willing to lose it all so that they might believe this truth. That's why Paul boasts in his weaknesses. Christians boast in their weakness because it demonstrates the power of God to change hearts. Because only somebody's heart has been changed would ever think like that. I mean, that's a miracle. To boast in cerebral palsy? To boast in cancer? It proves that we've experienced a miracle of regeneration. And it proves that we care more about proclaiming eternal life to others more than just simply improving our life right now. Weaknesses prove the reality of what Christ has done in us. And it gives power to our proclamation. I mean, it makes you want to say, bring it on. Give me weakness, right? So let me ask you, which do you want more? Healing for these afflictions health, wealth, success, achieving all of your dreams now or more loss 
more weaknesses, more disrespect, more calamities, more persecutions, but a guarantee of eternal life to come. I'd ask you to ask that question right now. What is it that you want? And be honest with the Lord. He's listening. He knows your thoughts. What would you rather have? Can you say with Paul that I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course with joy the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God? Can you say that? Have you experienced the radical, miraculous transformation of regeneration? Because only somebody who has would ever say that. The crowds, you see, are not drawn to Jesus because of what He's saying. They're not drawn to Him because of what He's promising. They're drawn because they want help. In fact, if you think about it, they're not really drawn to Him at all. They're drawn to His power. That's what they want. They want an improved life. In fact, the very reality that they're willing to crush him in order to get it demonstrates not just their desperation, it demonstrates their selfishness. Think about it. They care more about their affliction being removed than they care about the affliction that they're bringing upon Christ. And in fact, anybody that's more concerned about their affliction usually doesn't realize the affliction they're bringing upon Christ. Because we're wallowing in our self-pity. And we don't think about how that dishonors the name of the Lord. How it loses the opportunity to glorify God in an amazing way. With real power. Because we're more concerned about our afflictions. Like the crowds. And we can sympathize with them because we're all like them. In fact, the crowds really represent every man. Every man who experiences the death and decay of sin. All of us. We all want to be freed from whatever calamity that we're facing. But it's only those who've experienced the miracle of regeneration that boast in such weaknesses. Next, we're directed to the demons. And they're drawn to Him for an altogether different reason. They want to interfere with what Christ is doing. Notice verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You're the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell him who he was. You know, interesting, it says that the demons would fall down before Jesus. Or what, what it's depicting is the people that they possessed would fall before Jesus. And demonstrating at least externally, an attitude of worship and submission. I mean, that's, that's what that phrase means, to fall down before. You fall down before a Lord, a superior. These demons are demonstrating worship and submission. They even cry out, You are the Son of God! Apparently they're exalting Him. Demons! 
Do you realize demons can exalt God? Of course, it's not from the heart, as we know. Because why is it that Jesus earnestly warns them not to make his identity known? In fact, the word earnestly warns actually means command with, with, a, with a sense of making a threat. You better shut up or else, is what he's saying. Silence. And, he, and the demons can hear it in his voice. They know he means business. And they know what Christ can do to them with a word. Why does he warn them not to let people know? Well, it has to do with the people's assumptions about the Messiah. I mean, this, this feeding frenzy of people longing to have their afflictions removed. What would they do if they knew? This isn't just some prophet. This isn't some man who has the Holy Spirit and can heal people. This is the Son of God Himself. How much more frenzied would they be? What more would they expect? What war would they want? Because the the crowd, they assume that the Messiah, when He comes, He's going to establish Jerusalem as His capital in the world. Where the Jews will then rule over the nations. And they will subjugate all the people. They will move from being subjugated to being subjugators. I mean, just think about people that you know of who, who have been subjugated their whole life, disrespected, trampled. And if they knew the flick of the switch, they would be in complete power. The tables would be turned. The demons are feeding that. This is the Son of God. They would be more attracted to His power rather than His ultimate purpose. They would, they would say, look, He can heal you now, now, now. Preventing them from hearing what their real healing needs to be. They will be drawn to His power rather than His words. So recognize that they're pointing out the identity of Jesus is their attempt to distract them, the people, from Christ's ultimate purpose. The demons are just trying to draw away people from Christ by drawing them to His power. His power to make their lives better. And this is why He won't permit them to speak. So the demons are drawn to Christ in order to distract the crowds. They want to be people to be drawn to Christ for the wrong reasons. And if the people begin to think this way, they're going to be doubly deceived. First of all, they're going to think, hey, I've gotten everything I need. Been healed. When they have a massive healing that they still need. Namely, salvation from their sin. Second of all, they're going to think that they believe in Christ when they don't. Because they believe in His power to heal. They're going to think, yeah, we've come to Christ. We've gotten His power. We've, we've felt His power. We've been healed. I'm a follower of Him. When they're not following a single thing he's saying, they're just thinking of themselves. Doubly deceived. Do you recognize that Satan isn't stupid? He knows how to dupe people. He knows what people want. He knows exactly how to take people down. Make them think that they want Christ when what they really want is self. In fact, convince them that in their desire to please themselves, they want Christ. 
Make them think that Jesus just wants to make them healthy, sorry, happy, healthy, and wealthy. And when he doesn't accomplish that, they'll reject him. Isn't that what they did? Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. A week later, crucify him. Crucify him. He's a fraud. Do you see, you see now why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn. Because those people who recognize they have a deep need that can't be just fixed temporarily, they'll be drawn to Christ for the right reasons. And they're the people that are least likely to be deceived by fraudulent Christianity and religion. So far we've seen the crowds coming to Christ because of what they heard He was doing. The demons want to interfere with this purpose. And thirdly, we see why the apostles come to Christ. They come to Christ because they were explicitly chosen. They're explicitly chosen. It says in verse 13, He went up on the mountain and summoned those whom He Himself wanted. And they came to Him. And He appointed twelve so that they'd be with Him and that He could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And note, first of all, that Mark has moved settings here. He's moved from the sea where the crowds and the demons were, to the mountain where Jesus calls the apostles. And you might recall from Chris's exposition of the Pentateuch that the sea and mountains are symbolism used throughout the Scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, but also in the New. The sea frequently symbolizes the nations that are in rebellion against God. Obviously, I mean, just think of the flood. All the nations, all those people were drowned and God preserved a remnant with Noah. Well, the sea represents the nations in rebellion. And the mountains typically are symbolic of the presence of God in His dwelling place. In fact, by all accounts, it appears that Eden was actually on a mountain. And that's why mountains figure whenever there's a major renewal within the covenant. You have... um, Abraham at Mount Moriah, you have Noah at Mount Ararat, you have Moses at Mount Sinai, then Mount Zion. All key places of covenant renewal. And so the presence of the boat by the sea too might even be an allusion to Noah and the ark. Maybe. But the ascent of the mountain and then the subsequent selection of the twelve is most likely an allusion to Mount Sinai. That these 12 disciples are taking the place, in a sense, of the 12 tribes of Israel. Fulfilling what the Israelites were originally designed to do. You might recall that Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. But they utterly failed. Remember, God promised Abraham, and in you, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. 
as they walked in obedience. But of course, they didn't. They broke the covenant and were disciplined and then scattered. And so Jesus now is selecting 12 men to fulfill that original purpose that he gave to Israel. That those 12 men could go down from the mountain and proclaim to all of the nations, all of the people by the sea and beyond the sea. The greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will bring the hope of eternal life. And that's why he points them to preach. And to have authority to cast out demons. Notice also that the text says that he summoned them. Also the repetition of he appointed them. Verses 14 and 16. Also, these were the men that he himself wanted. Emphasis. Not just he wanted, but he himself wanted. Clear emphasis. These are the ones that Jesus personally chose. They come to Christ because Christ called them to come to himself. A massive emphasis on selection, choosing, appointment. Recall what we read in John 15. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Now, I think it's important that we recognize that Jesus' calling of the disciples, the apostles here, does not represent the effectual call to salvation, but rather just a call to ministry, particularly apostolic ministry. Now, we know it's not the effectual call to salvation, Because look who's included in verse 19. Judas, who betrayed him. So these aren't men who were, this is not not representing their call to salvation, which all of them will experience, but rather their call to apostolic ministry. Now, but when God does call a person to eternal life, Along with that call is an immediate call to be in ministry. If you have been regenerated, if you've been born again, you've also been called to ministry. There are no spectators in Christianity. We're all involved in this game. The only spectators are those in the world. In fact, 1 Corinthians 4, 9 Paul says, for I think that God has exhibited us as as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. The apostles are the spectacle. And notice, to the world, to angels, and the men. Everybody else is looking on them as they seek to proclaim the majesty of the glory of the gospel. The spectators are on the outside watching. Everybody else, namely Christians, they're in the game. So every believer is immediately called to ministry when they're saved. Now, we also know that not all are called to the same kind of ministry. For instance, we're not all called to be apostles. I don't think any of us are. Conversation for another time. We're all called to different ministries, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. The the body of Christ is a body with different members, right? 
And the ministry these men were called to was apostolic ministry. And it's defined for us. These were the men that he would send out to reach the nations with the gospel. In fact, the word apostle means sent one. Those who were sent. And know what Jesus appoints the apostles to do. First, he appoints them to be with him. Interesting that even it highlights that. He's not just sending them out to preach, but first they're going to be with him. Why would that be? The idea being conveyed is that Jesus was, was selecting them to remain with him. To follow him. To learn from him. He was appointing them to learn from him so they might know what to preach and also how to preach. This demonstrates the fact that before they could preach and call people to follow after Christ, they had to first understand what it meant to follow Christ. Jesus doesn't want them just to display information, to proclaim ideas. He wants them to show people this is what a follower of Christ Looks like this is how one lives. And this is why preachers are required not only to teach the truth, they're required to live like Christ. Not just teach the truth about Christ, but actually to live like Christ. Errol Hulse, um, that name might not be familiar to you, he was. One of the founders of Banner of Truth, good friend of Martin Lloyd-Jones and Ian Murray. A well-known preacher of the previous generation. He once said this. The sail out of which powerful preaching grows is the preacher's own life. The preacher, like Moses, is to speak God's word to God's people. To speak that word accurately and powerfully, the preacher must first allow himself to be spoken to by that word, both directly and indirectly. The apostles had to be with Christ. And then he would send them out to preach. Robert Murray McShane famously said, It's not great talent which God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awesome weapon in the hand of God. And just tie that into what we were talking about in 2 Corinthians. A holy person recognizes the power of God is at work within them. Therefore, they're going to boast in their weaknesses. They're dead to themselves. So the power of God can shine through them. That's awesome weaponry. Power will take place in the life of a godly minister. Not just a godly pastor, but a godly minister. In other words, a godly Christian. So Jesus first appoints these apostles to be with him. The second and third things he appoints them to do is to preach and to have authority over demons. And recognize that these acts are essentially the same things he's been doing. They're just to continue the work that he's begun. He's appointing them to serve as his representative to the world. And he knows he's leaving. And when he's gone, that's all the church is going to have. They're going to take his place. 
That's what's going on here. Mark then names each of the twelve. And at the end of the list, he notes Judas who betrayed him. Now, Judas is included, so what do we make of that? I think it, it points out the reality that not all who are serving in ministry are regenerate. And not all who think they serve God are. And thus the warning from Matthew 7.21, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? They didn't know Him. In fact, because ministry is by definition service to God and service to people, it's really easy to be self-deceived. Right? Because we just automatically assume, well, if I'm serving God, I'm serving other people, I must be doing it out of godly motivations. Maybe the best evidence of how easy it is to be deceived is what Jesus says in John 16, 2-3. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering service to God. Well, they're clearly not in God's will at this point. But they think they are. Wasn't this what was going on in the mind of Saul the Pharisee? When he went from house to house and was pursuing people even towards Damascus, that he might throw the church in prison? He thought he was serving God in his persecution of the church. Paul also noted in Philippians chapter 1 that there were many preachers who proclaim Christ, but not from godly motives, but selfish ambition and from rivalry and envy. Philippians 1, 15-17. So how would one know, how would you and I know if we're being driven by the Spirit in our ministry or by self? Or if, the, or if it's mixed motives? Well, first of all, are you motivated by what you get out of the ministry? Respect, appreciation, sense of significance, money if you're paid, or by the love of God and love for people? Just think of all the ways you serve. Why do you serve that way? behind it. Another way to think of it, love seeks to give more than it seeks to gain. This is true in marriage as well as in ministry. Love seeks to give more than it seeks to gain. So are you serving people on Sundays as much as they're serving you? And if you know that you're frequently fueled by by knowing that you're making a difference in the world, would you continue to serve in a ministry for the rest of your life if you saw little to no fruit, but you knew that fruit would eventually come when your successor took over? 
would you still be willing to serve? If you gain respect by your service, would you continue to serve people if you were frequently disrespected? Would you continue to serve in that ministry if you received more criticism than affirmation? Are you praying for people as much as they're praying for you? Love seeks to give more than it seeks to gain. Flip it around. I seek to gain more than I seek to give. Is that love? What is that? Selfishness. If your gift is giving, would you continue to be as generous if you never got to experience any of the fruit of that generosity? Again, if you're financially supported, I think that would just be me. Would you be willing to work for free? I love one of my preaching professors. Some of you may know him, Alex Montoya. He would he would he would tell us. Did you, I wish I could say it in the same voice he would. I can't. I'd butcher it. But he'd say, "You need to be willing to pay people to listen to you preach. Don't expect an honorarium. You should be paying them to listen to you." But he'd say it with much more machismo and much more effect. But he's true. It's true. And that's the way all of us should think. We should be willing to give whatever it takes so that people can hear this great news that we want them to hear. We should be willing to give whatever it takes that they might gain eternal life. Can you say with Paul, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church. Are you filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ because you so love His church? Now make no mistake, to think such a way, that's unearthly. That's crazy. That's unnatural. But it is the unmistakable mark that a person's heart has been changed. That they no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Which is the definition of a Christian. It's the incontrovertible evidence that you have come to Christ and that He has called you. Because there's no way you would do that unless He had done a work in you first. And except for Judas, absolute devotion to Christ and His church is what marked each of the twelve men that are described here. That's no mistake. These are our forefathers. These are the example setters. These are the ones that show us what it means to follow Christ. Why do we know that? Because they followed Him. They didn't just embrace some information, go along with cultural ideas. They weren't born in the church. They were called by Christ to follow Him. And now they give us an example. What does it mean to follow Him? 
Well, they tell us by their example. Peter was crucified upside down at his request because he did not believe he was worthy to be crucified like his Lord. James was the first apostle to be martyred. He was beheaded in Jerusalem by the order of King Agrippa. Acts chapter 12 is described. John, the brother of James, lived to, be, to a very old age, died on the island of Patmos where he had been exiled. Andrew preached in modern-day Turkey and in Greece where it is said he was crucified. Philip went to North Africa and then to Turkey. And while he was in Turkey, he converted through the proclamation of the gospel the wife of a Roman proconsul. That would be like Hillary Clinton, Michelle Obama. And because of this act, he was cruelly put to death. Bartholomew had widespread missionary travels attributed to him by tradition. He went to India with Thomas, we're told, and then to Armenia, and then also Ethiopia and southern Arabia. And according to legend, it was there that he was skinned alive and beheaded. Matthew ministered in Persia and Ethiopia where he was then stabbed to death. Thomas went to Syria and then as far as India where he was speared to death by four soldiers. James, the son of Alphaeus, ministered in Syria where he was then um, clubbed to death. Thaddeus founded a church in Edessa, Tyre and Sidon area. And he was crucified in Edessa. Simon the Zealot ministered in Persia and was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. And he was subsequently sawn in half. These men tell us, or should rather show us, What does it mean to follow Christ? They all experienced in their flesh what it truly means to be called by Christ. Their hearts were changed and they no longer lived for themselves, but for Him. And this is what Christ told them. If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. In summary, again, the crowds, they represent all of us. We all have afflictions that we want to be relieved from. We have deep longings that we want to be satisfied. And yet those longings can never be satisfied perfectly until we're freed from this body of sin and death. And then you have the demons whose aim is to distract from the glory of God. And this shows us, I mean, recognize they they pretended to worship. They demonstrated worship. In fact, they even said, you are the Son of God. Is that true or not true? It's absolutely true. They had right theology. They knew the Bible. Which shows us that knowledge is not enough. One of the things that just 
I wouldn't say angered, but maybe sometimes it does turn to anger. It just bothers me so much. This is when I'll talk to people who claim to follow Christ. And they say, well, because I believe a certain idea. And then I want to think, what, what has there been a change? If there's not a change, knowledge is not enough. Yes, it's through the gospel, it's through the truth of the gospel that we are born again. But just knowing truth isn't enough. How do we know? The demon said, I believe you're the Son of God. Mere intellectual assent is not enough. And yet so many people think it is. And this lie gets spread. All you need to do is just believe these truths and just keep living like you want. Where do you think that teaching comes from? The doctrine of demons. Because that's what the demons wanted to do. Oh yeah, Jesus just wants to make your life better. He doesn't want to transform you. We must be born again. And then there's the apostles. They experience this miracle of mercy. And they're so satisfied they have died to themselves. And recognize this is a process. In fact, it's hard to know even if were they genuine believers by the end of Mark, it's hard to know. Maybe they were, but I think for most of us, we learn what it means to follow Christ. It's a continual, in fact, the more we mature, the more we realize how much to ourselves we continually need to die. And so if you recognize you're not fully dead to yourself, the question isn't, are you there yet? But are you, do you want to be there? Are you pursuing that? Has your heart been changed? One who has tasted the glory of God is truly content to lose everything. Because they've tasted, they've seen how great the glory of God is. It's not just words. You guys see that? They, 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 they so treasure God that the truths that they've learned from His book, they're willing to lose everything so that everybody else might know it. This means more than anything else. They have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Not, they didn't just believe it. It's like the difference between tasting honey and just being told honey is good. So many Christians aren't Christians because they just, oh, I believe Jesus saves. I believe He's good. I believe He's the Son of God. But they've never tasted His glory. They've never tasted the transformation that treasures Him above everything else. And one who's tasted the glory of God is truly content to lose all because He's found something better. My question is you, for you, is have you come to Christ? Have you experienced His call of salvation in your soul? Let's pray.
Lord, such, such a work cannot be merely preached. It can't be merely sung. There, there's nothing we could do to make people believe these things. Words are not enough. We need You to do this work in our hearts, in our souls, and as we proclaim Your glory, the glory of Your Gospel to the world, Lord, we ask that You would help people to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Because we realize everybody in this world is veiled to Your glory. And so we ask that we'd use our lives. You would use our words our sacrifices, our afflictions, our losses to bring the radiance of Your glory to the nations. We want to pick up where the apostles left off. We don't want to waste our life anymore just indulging our flesh, living for ourselves like every other godless person in this world. God, do a work, do a miracle in us. Help us to see the radiance of Your glory, that we might truly live for You and experience gospel ministry as You've designed it. We ask all these things through the mercy of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.